0: plan savings with three lines of t-mobile essentials versus comparable available plans plan features and taxes and fees may vary
1: welcome to overnight america with ryan Recker on kmox sponsored by michael's flooring the flooring experts michaelsflooringoutlet.com and welcome back to overnight america You may have heard on the national news or seen this on the national news, but there is certain areas that are going through some pretty nasty windstorms. And that happens to affect our guest, Susan Burrows, who we were going to speak to for the next couple of segments. Unfortunately, we can't get a hold of her. She gave us a text message earlier that said she wanted to give us a heads up. She lost power and Internet because of the windstorm, but it shouldn't affect her cell service. Unfortunately, it sounds like it has affected the cell service. So we are still trying to get a hold of her. We hope we can. And in the meantime, I am going to talk about something else. But I thought it was going to be a great interview. Her book is called Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction. And really, what does that mean when you have a family member that goes through addiction? And what does that do to the family? How difficult is is that for a parent uh, to deal not only with the child, but everyone else in the family? We've talked to other people in the past that have shared their experiences of what it's like to have Uh, a a kid. And it's not an easy thing to do. Oh, how about that? There we go. Susan Burroughs. Luckily, we are able to connect. Thank you for joining us here on KMOX.
2: Oh, thank you for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure.
1: I'm guessing you're at home listening to the wind just hit your house over and over again.
2: It is. We're in the forest and I'm having a candlelight chat with you. <laughs> and I would say I'm freezing, except I think all of your listeners would laugh at me. Since I'm an old Ohio girl, I know that uh, the freezing is not what I'm experiencing now.
1: <laughs> wow. And you're using your cell phone charge to call us into this radio interview. So I am thankful for that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I wanted to, and I, I just set up your book. And it's called "Off the Rails: One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction." And mm-hmm. part of the idea, and I think some families have experienced this firsthand just recently, based on them having to stay back and lock themselves in because of COVID, they've seen all kinds of different changes in the behaviors of their kids, and the, even in themselves, things that they didn't realize could happen. And this is nothing new. This is something that a lot of families have dealt with over time. I was curious about your story, and I think it's important to talk about these things because it can be something that a lot of families could benefit from when we start to talk about these issues inside the family. So, uh, and off the rails, can you kind of give me an idea of what goes on in your family?
2: Oh, sure. Well, um, we start out as two working parents with two kids, and frankly, a boring family, and uh, it wasn't until our uh, older child hit 15 that we saw a very sudden downward spiral into drugs and other high-risk behaviors, and uh, we were in denial uh, because so many of these behaviors look like regular teen behaviors, but more, but bigger, and uh, by the time we came out of denial, it was uh, it was too late for us to uh, use early intervention methods, and we had to go to some pretty extreme lengths. And um, when our child was done with those programs and had returned home, we became a mentor for other parents, and they kept asking the same questions over and over again. And that's where the book was born. It was um, what I consider a love story about Mm. a mom and a daughter uh, finding their way back to each other through this terrible series of events.
1: Yeah, and... I'm going to uh, hopefully it's OK. If, and the questions that I asked tonight, because out of curiosity, there's just a lot of things that I wonder about. And I'm guessing you've received a lot of these questions. But when you do open up about your family, I understand some of these things could be a little bit too personal. So if you're not comfortable, just let me know. Um, when you Thank talked you. about early on, when you start to see some of the changes with your daughter and you kind of went through a period of denial, was it that you were denying that it was a problem, or were you denying that there was a problem or the severity of it, or did you think maybe she'll come out of it? what What do you mean by that?
2: What a great question that is and And I think there's a little bit of all of that uh, involved in a parent's reaction uh, in particular, I think if you look at the warning signs themselves so You look at uh, warning signs like lying or sudden slipping in grades or change of appearance or peer group. You know, those are some of the most frequent warning signs. And that's regular teen behavior and what kid doesn't want to change their appearance when they start high school? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, came the second wave of changes, which was the trouble staying focused. And... Mm -hmm dilated or pinpoint pupils or really high levels of moodiness and uh, that was uh, those were the warning signs that just started shaking us up and then finally for some families unfortunately they're going to you know see physical evidence of what happened like the track marks and nosebleeds their runny noses and uh, drug paraphernalia actually in their room or empty alcohol containers, and um, sadly, in in our case, it was uh, bloody band aids in the bathroom uh, when our daughter started cutting. That mm. uh, pulled us out of our denial and said, "You have a real issue here, and uh, you need to <laughs> you needed to address this and uh, better late than wow. never."
1: So was that your daughter's addiction? It was self-mutilation?
2: No. Um, If you name an addiction, my daughter was probably um, experiencing it.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. So multiple. uh, Hmm.
2: It was just, yeah, it just ran the whole spectrum. And, um, you know, we know now, we know that oftentimes our teens are uh, self-medicating for underlying conditions mm-hmm. and you know you'd brought up COVID before and you know this sets up the perfect storm for teens to feel depressed and to feel isolated and uh, so this is a, a great topic to have uh, mm-hmm. because we want to make sure that we that we take care of our teens, that we recognize and validate When they tell us they're bored or when they tell us they're lonely or isolated, Mm -hmm. you think about all of us being jammed in a house together for a long period of time Mm -hmm. and our teens have lost their rituals. They have no graduation, no Fourth of July, um, no first day of school. And then, you know, add the seasonal depression on top of the COVID and you have a recipe for some pretty high risk behaviors
1: yeah no you're right and even as adults uh, we we look at the issues mentally speaking that have just really caused people to do things they never thought they would do being idle and Mm -hmm. bored is never a good recipe if you have these other underlining things that could present itself and you know being a teenager that adds it on top do you wonder um and let's say before all of this started what was your relationship with her and then was, was it the withdrawal of that relationship that you started to notice and you thought, well, maybe it's just a teenage thing? Or was there other, um, maybe, the, I'm just trying to guess afterwards, did she become withdrawn in a way where she didn't communicate with you the same way? And then you uh, you just thought it was just the natural, what happens at that age?
2: Well, to answer your question, I am going to tell you that we referred to our child that we loved as a house terrorist. So so this is you know, there were definitely changes in behaviors. We all we're a close family we um we've always been a close family. And so to see these kinds of changes and to see the anger and um, the belligerence uh, was just was really frightening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I said, some of it we thought uh, was changes in peer groups and a, cha- a new school at the time. Oh, we just cast about for any excuse that we could find. Believe me. Mm. Oh, oh yeah. it's peer pressure. You know, oh, it's a tumultuous world. You know, what, what excuse didn't we use? So, wow. and, and what we didn't realize, I think, at that time that I, that I know now is that 85% of us who are speaking or listening either have somebody in their own family or know somebody uh, in you know in their extended family or their friend group or neighbors who are going through much the same thing, and it's it's a shame that we feel so much stigma about admitting it, coming forward, getting help, because so many of us are going through the same thing. It, it seems like it might be a better idea for us to be open and help each other.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of us experienced something and it really hit us when we were openly discussing the opioid issue in america because there were so many cases of that and we started to realize wow there's more people affected by this than we could ever imagine and sometimes it's Mm -hmm. within your even circle your neighborhood Uh, do you mind holding on after the break i would love to talk to you more about the effects of this on your family as you're going through this and, and trying to work on this together of course Yeah, and your book is called Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction. Where can people find your book?
2: Um, Anywhere books are sold. So Amazon and Barnes & Noble, certainly, but also your independent booksellers.
1: Great. Off the Rails author Susan Burroughs. We'll continue with her right after the break on Overnight America KMOX. Get home fast and informed. Total information PM starts weekdays at 4 on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX and KMOX.com. Susan Burroughs is a mother who talks about her family's journey through teen addiction in her book called Off the Rail. Susan, thank you for joining us tonight on KMOX. Thank you. Well, you have other children, and you talked about your daughter and some of the things that started to happened when she was a teenager. And as a family, in looking at your other kids, when you have one teenager that's battling addiction, what did that do for everyone else? What, what was it like for them?
2: Well, it, it just was, uh, it just, an addicted teen affects the whole family. It has a, a profound and long lasting effect on the family, but especially uh, the siblings. Uh they are the most affected and as a parent you can see it but uh there's very little that you can do about it. You can try to um mitigate it in some ways, but uh it is going to it is going to have a devastating effect on the SIPs.
1: Mm. Is and, recovery like a roller coaster? Is it up and down a lot of that?
2: Um, not for our family, but for other families uh it is it can be and sometimes the first time that kids go through recovery is not the last time. Uh, for us uh, so far, uh, we have uh, sustained sobriety but that um, that was a long time coming. We had to make use of some extreme programs and so uh, we actually gave our child up into the care of others for about 18 months. and. Um, the effect on our younger daughter uh, was both direct and indirect. I mean, it's um, it's terrible for a kid to um, watch their sibling, uh, in this case, their older sibling, stealing from them, threatening from them, demanding money, demanding silence and uh, through threats and sometimes through violence and sometimes through... Um, other nastiness. So it's, it's very, very tough uh, to to get involved in that. And sometimes um, you see it and it's too late. Wow. So um, as an example, we had uh, our daughter, our younger daughter just loved Beanie
1: Babies. Do you
2: remember Beanie
1: Babies? And... <laughs> I was never into them, but yeah, they were big in the 90s well, there. You yeah.
2: Know, yeah, a bit, very big, actually even later than the 90s. and We had a, <laughs> a very innocent young woman, and uh, she would have little cities of Beanie Babies, and she loved her Beanie Babies. And um, when she finally uh, decided that she was going to stop meeting her sister's demands for money and silence, her sister snuck into her room and cut the heads off all her Beanie Babies. Oh. Now, that's pretty scary stuff.
1: Yeah, no kidding. And, and to, to try mm-hmm. to like explain that to a younger sibling, there's probably a level of maturity that they're not at yet, but they start to grow up pretty quick in just the, the environment right. that they're in. They grow, and then they start to understand things of the world sooner than they should and that's got to be difficult too as a parent to notice that a lot of that childhood innocence and things is uh, it's, it's it's gone uh, in a lot of ways
2: oh definitely matured very quickly you know when you have to um, take your younger child with you because your spouse is out of town and um, to pick up your older daughter and uh, she's he sees her sister, you know, laying in downtown on the sidewalk in her own mess. You know, that's not—that's no way for a child to come up, and that's, you know, that that did damage and uh, certainly caused a lot of pain uh, yeah. for the family. Yeah.
1: Well, in in the worst of it, with your daughter's addiction, were you always optimistic, or were there moments where? deep down inside you thought this, I don't think I can beat this. I don't think she can beat this.
2: You know, I, I wouldn't say optimistic. I I wouldn't necessarily use that word. I would use the word determined. Um, And we made a commitment to each other and we made a commitment as a family that we were going to do everything that our child did. So every Therapy that they took we took every book that they read we read We wanted to make sure that we had the same language so that we could speak to them during and after um, their initial recovery and uh, That was that was very helpful. And I think that You know, I don't think we ever let ourselves think that we wouldn't make it through Mm. And sadly, I know I know there are families that that don't make it through, and that certainly could have happened to us, but we tried to be very matter of fact and we tried to be very uh, positive in moving through the program. Mm.
1: Did you find that maybe the friend she made during her addictions, um, did, did you ever check up on them to wonder? Because I I wonder, too, because when you're involved with certain crowds of people and they encourage your daughter and they're just encouraging each other to do these very destructive things and you're trying to pull her out of that and you're trying to uh, you're trying to get her into an area where she can be clean and you go back and look Mm -hmm. and there's always the friends that try to grab them back in and you're doing everything you can to separate yourself from them. Did you find that to be the case? Did you find that her friends they didn't have the same support system that you had with your daughter? So they're always tugging at her and you're just doing everything you can to make sure she doesn't get back into that circle.
2: Absolutely. I mean there are people that trigger you, right? There's people who I mean for adults as well. You know, we know that you're especially for teenagers. That peer groups can trigger them. We asked her to unplug from social media and, or largely reduce it, and to avoid certain people. And these were conditions of her rejoining the family. And um, you know, so that was that was a good <laughs> that was a, a good thing to do. So, do I ever check up on them? Uh, not no. I would say no. I don't. We have, you know, hopefully moved on to other healthier friendships. Um, uh, We do keep in touch with some of the other families who are in the program. And we know that even under the best of circumstances, that only two out of every five kids who go into rehab are going to be able to sustain uh, sobriety. And so far, there's only one out of five uh, who is sustaining sobriety out of the program, and we're we're very fortunate uh, to be able to say that that's uh, our daughter
1: Wow, that really is terrible odds <laughs> terrible odds yeah and you're, I, I, I'm, I don't know does your daughter recognize how lucky she is to have people fighting on her side like you?
2: you know um she's very close to the family now and Yes, I think that she has stated many times that she thought that we had uh, saved her life. But at the same time, you know, she is adamant about the fact that the types of programs that she went through should only be used in the most extreme circumstances when you think that your child is going to hurt themselves or Mm -hmm. hurt somebody else. So I always make sure to, you know, to go ahead and pass that along. There were a lot of kids uh, in that program who probably shouldn't have been there and who might have had more harm done than, than, uh, than help. Wow. So um, I, well, I really strongly suggest that families look to early intervention and um, just less extreme options in, in helping and supporting their team.
1: Your book is called Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction. People can find it online. You're online, too. Your website, Mm -hmm. SusanBurrows.com. People can go right there and find, uh, you know, it's good to see the cover art so you're familiar with what it looks like if you go into a local bookstore, but people can go to Amazon, which are getting great reviews. Uh, Susan Burrows, author of Off the Rails. I'm so glad you came on and talked about this very important topic with us tonight. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: And again, SusanBurrows.com, B-U-R-R-O-W-E-S, and her book, Off the Rails, One Family's Journey Through Teen Addiction. Really amazing stuff. And she joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. And really, I think so many families and people have realized just how wide-reaching addiction is. And just over the last couple of years, the amount of attention we put to the opioid epidemic, realizing that it's further reaching than we ever believed. Joining us uh, coming up after the break is David Dozier. He's a scholar of public relations. He's also a professor with the School of Journalism and Media Studies at San Diego State University. And he wants to talk about how fake news has become a phenomenon and really what brought it and where it's going. So he's going to come up after the weather on Overnight America KMOX.
2: Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
1: Instacart knows
0: nothing gets between you and the game.
1: News Radio 1120 KMOX, the voice of the Cardinals. I think this has been a part of the national discussion for the past five plus years, ten years. It's been around the idea of fake news, and what does that entail, the rise of it, and how does it play into today's discussions. Joining us is a scholar of public relations and a communication management, also Professor Emeritus in the School of Journalism and Media Studies at San Diego State University. Spotting these things, David Dozier, thank you so much for coming on to KMOX. Thanks for having me. The California Killing Field is the name of your book. I I wanted to first point out, the origins of fake news it has been around for a while. I don't know if it's necessarily had a name up until it was popularized, I would say, with the rise of Donald Trump in 2016-15. Uh, Maybe I'm not looking that back far enough. Maybe it's been around for a while.
0: I think that uh, the actual use of that in kind of our you know day-to-day conversations really dates back to uh, 2016 and uh, President Trump's uh, popularization of the phrase. Um, and I think that we've got to be clear that uh, there's uh, a distinction to be made between uh, misinformation and disinformation. Uh, misinformation is simply being uninformed and sharing it with other people. Uh, disinformation, which is really what we're talking about with fake news, is the person originating that information knows that it's not true and they're disseminating it anyway to, you know, either achieve some kind of political objective or, you know, as satire or humor.
1: So I think the definition of fake news varies, too, because when people use it, I don't think everyone has a baseline terminology. There's I'm maybe in the Webster Dictionary right now, and I don't know. But so kind of go through that distinction again. What exactly... Do we should we call fake news?
0: Well, I think uh, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head, which I think it's uh, just become a way of uh, describing something you disagree with. So if um, uh, you watch MSNBC, uh, and you're kind of uh, left of center, then you'll say, well, Fox News is fake news. And if you little right of center and you watch a lot of Fox News, you gonna say MSNBC is fake news. And, and, and so it's, it's developed that sort of lack of meaning because it's been used just as a way to put down a source of information. But precisely what it means is that it's information that purports to be news, purports to be factual information, but in fact has been made up. And it's been made up with some kind of uh, motive in mind, in terms of influencing other people. And it could be to, uh, you know, uh, influence our political opinions. It might be to, you know, buy a, a product or, or or boycott a product or whatever. So there might be a whole bunch of different motivations for fake news. But what has at its core is the idea that you're um, trying to deceive somebody into thinking, well, this is legitimate news. It's factual based, when in fact you know as the originator of that information that it's not
1: mm. and it has been weaponized a lot and i think that when it's so it's interesting because you mentioned this before you you look at things you disagree as and you may disagree at uh, as fake news even though it may be factual and i think sometimes we look at that and realize that it's a tool that's used widely by a lot of different politicians and people in power. And that's why trying to define it and try to use it in a proper way so we at least have a baseline understanding of it would be important because if we just throw it around, it loses all meaning. And then that, that makes it even more dangerous because we're distrustful of everything that's told to us.
0: You're absolutely right. And I think that the the challenge has come with the proliferation of social media as a way for... Uh, a lot of people to get to get news about twenty percent of Americans depend on social media for for news, which is kind of strange because social media doesn 't collect or disseminate news it 's individual users on the different platforms that uh, either uh, post information from other sources or they make it up themselves and The problem is is that in the uh, wild, wild west of social media there's a lot of folks that are in a position to just generate information um, that's not true, and I think, um, you know, when we look at QAnon, I think that's a a good example of that. Um, If you're not a follower of QAnon, then you look at those belief systems as, you know, bizarre um, and, and totally out of touch with reality, but for the folks inside that bubble, it all makes sense, and the challenge in our country is that we've gotten to the point where we're in parallel universes uh, and uh, uh, where, where um, anything the other side says is just automatically not true. And there, there is a basis for discovering what the truth is. And as citizens in a democracy, we have a, a responsibility to make the extra effort to decide for ourselves um, what's true and what's not true, but put some energy into tracking down information. Um, the same internet that gave us social media, which is so problematic in terms of disseminating fake news also gives us the tools to check it out. Um, Go back to original sources, triangulate on information from multiple outlets to see if in fact that that a particular piece of information that you picked up from Facebook or Twitter, is that check out with other sources that, that you may trust?
1: You know, I wonder, and you're someone that is a professor of, uh, is part of the School of Journalism and Media Studies, and I don't know how far back you go, but with today's students versus students of the past, I'm wondering if they're more able to identify these things coming into your classroom, or are they able to identify these flaws and maybe some of the methodology that's used by certain news organizations and are they able to disseminate that sort of problem or is it more difficult for them to do it because they've already been bombarded and flooded with it at a young age that's just that's what they believe is the the way things are done my my
0: sample is a little biased because i was training journalism students and so they were um probably more sophisticated than your average um, uh, college student in terms of you know where does information come from and how do you verify facts and what have you um, i think that what's changed is the um... the environment um... it's become simply cluttered with more information um... from sources that um... we should probably distrust and um... certainly young people are much more sophisticated in how they're able to access um, uh, digital media and uh, the way they can go and ferret out information um, uh, in the, uh, the new uh, information ecosystem. Um, but whether they have the skill set to uh, discern, you know, truth from fiction, um, I think it's just as problematic for the younger generation, Gen Z students, as it was for the late baby boomers that were actually going to Uh, going to school when uh, I first started teaching. By the way, um, uh, my first teaching gig was at Central Michigan University, which I understand is your alma mater. No
1: Uh, way. Yes. What a great connection. Yeah, Fire up chips. What years were you there? Uh, 78. So you were there for some time. It is a good journalism school. In fact, it was even a great broadcast school back then.
0: It, it was a great school, and I had a great time there. I love Central Michigan University. I love Michiganders. I hate Michigan winters. I'm a California <laughs> weather wimp, and I, when I got a chance to come back uh, and start my teaching uh, at San Diego State, I uh, I bid uh, a bid adieu to uh, Central Michigan, but I, I love the place. I love the people.
1: Oh, that is wonderful. I, I do, too. And I, I wonder the way we look at social media and websites and we're so into fact checking. And for me, I get a little skeptical because you realize that there's certain organizations that are like accrediting fact checkers. And then you find that, again, it's a flawed system because the people that are running it may have their own biased opinions on things and they may dismiss stories that are legitimate because for whatever reason it is. And then they, they may push other stories and these social media networks are trusting on organizations organizations that may not have a, an equal balance when it comes to the news and then you see so many people like today uprising and saying look at just the purge that they're doing on social media it pushes people further away because they look at that and say this is just proof that there is problems when it comes to fake news and uh, biases and preferential treatment when it comes to two different ideologies and it just makes things so much worse and we see this over and over and over again so uh, I guess the the big question the question that I think everyone 's trying to figure out is how do we maneuver through the the area we 're in right now it 's just so murky what, How do you make things better well i it's it's one
0: of my um, one of my uh, uh, favorite projects and there are a number of um, of uh, educators that uh, you know kindergarten through twelfth and also in in higher education that are pushing this notion of uh, digital and social media literacy. There are a set of skills that citizens in a democracy need to have to do just precisely those things that you were describing and dealing with um, those um, sources of information that we may not want to trust, even fact-checkers that you may not want to trust. Um, And and I I think that the best protection um, of our republic to be honest, is the ability to get all of us to the place where we become much more sophisticated in the kinds of information we believe and we don't believe. And I think that that's a skill set that, frankly, ought to start in uh, in uh, K-12. Um, and I think definitely every undergraduate uh, at the college level ought to have a course in digital and social media literacy. Um, it's... Um, it's uh, a long answer to a very good question. Uh, And there's a number of techniques that we can use to get at factual information. And uh, 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 Kevin Price is a a, a conservative libertarian, uh, uh, has a conservative libertarian radio show. He and I have had some great conversations where, um, uh, and he said it best. He says, you know, Dave, you and I can look at the same fact. I'm kind of, uh, you know, Bernie Democrat, if you will, and okay. uh, but he and I have a great friendship, and um, he says, you know, we can look at the same facts, and we may disagree in terms of our opinion about what it means or how important it is. And he says, but at least we can agree on the facts, and we can develop some common skills that are not ideological. It doesn't matter whether you're on the left or the right or in the center. These are skills that any citizen in a democracy should have to be able to tease out the facts, and then from that point forward. We can disagree. We can have arguments. Um, we can uh, 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 counter and uh, counterpoint the other person's point of view. Um, but at least we have a, uh, a baseline of facts that we've agreed on, and that's the scary part about what's going on now. When you had a mob, you know, invade the capital to try to undermine a constitutional process um, because they really believe that an election was stolen through massive fraud. Um, I think that. Um, most people have come to realize, not everybody, but a majority of Americans have come to realize that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, Mr. Biden won the election, uh, and it wasn't too far. He, he, he got more votes, and he won more electoral votes, um, and that's the facts. Um, there are some people that disagree with that. And that's the challenge. So we've got to get everybody in the tent and at least saying, OK, well, let's figure out what the facts are. We can still decide whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that, um, uh, uh, that Mr. Biden won the election. But um, uh, the fact that he did or didn't win the election uh, and having some agreement on that, I think, is core to, um, you know, holding the republic together.
1: Great. Do you mind holding on after the break? I'd love to talk more about this. Yes, um, I'll stay right here. Yeah, and people could find your work, uh, some of your thoughts in your book, of course, uh, The California Killing Field, among other works that you're doing. If people wanted to look you up online, where can they find you?
0: Well, I got a website, um, and it's www.DavidDozierBooks.com. The, the last name is French, so it's got too many vowels in it. Uh, it's spelled D as in Delta, O-Z as in Zebra, I-E-R, DavidDozierBooks.com.
1: Perfect. And we'll continue our conversation right after the break on Overnight America KMOX.
0: This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michaels Flooring, the flooring experts.
1: MichaelsFlooringOutlet.com on KMOX. David Dozier is our guest. He has a book which you can find on his website, daviddozierbooks.com. You can do a search for the California Killing Field. Thank you again for coming on and talking about this tonight on Overnight America. Great to be here. If I would have known the Central Michigan background, I would have wore my Central Michigan sweater tonight, but I decided not to do that. I'm sorry I didn't give you a heads up. (laughs) When I look at the way social media has played a big part of this and the giants like the Facebook, the Twitters and the Googles and the Amazons and how all of these things are going on, we've talked about different regulations in the united states the section 230 comes up where it would put more pressure on these companies to be able to uh they have to be more responsible for the content that is on their websites do you think that would help things or do you think that would hurt things if we put those pressures on social media networks well yeah that that. As a uh, as
0: a college professor, there's a three hour answer to that. And uh, uh, back when I was getting paid to do that, and people had to listen, that's one thing. But you've got a, a radio show, so I'll get, try to give a real short answer. Um, one. Criticism is that when people are banned from uh, Twitter or Facebook, that that's somehow a violation of their First Amendment rights, and that's a complete misunderstanding of the First Amendment. Uh, These are private corporations, and historically, all media organizations have exercised control over content, and they decide who can communicate through that channel and who can't. There is a number of things that um, social media organizations can do uh, to identify information as um, fraudulent. Um, It's certainly reasonable in the case of clear and present danger to um, remove a person from a site. Um, But it it seems to me that that's the wrong end of the problem. uh, That's the wrong place to grab the problem. It really goes back to digital and social media literacy in my mind you can't really protect um people in such a diverse environment from getting bad information what we can do is um uh, teach people that there are ways in which you can for yourself decide what's true and what's not true and that's the best protection i yeah you know uh, um Twitter and Facebook can design all kinds of brilliant algorithms to try to uh, capture uh, content that's damaging or or threatening the national security or offensive to uh, 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 marginalized groups. Um, But... All they are is algorithms, and there's always going to be somebody out there uh, working on a way to get around them. And the best line of defense is in the brains of citizens in a democracy. And let me throw out a line here. You know, if we lived in North Korea, we wouldn't have to worry about this. We would have one source of information for everything, and frankly, our opinions wouldn't count anyway. The challenge of living in a republic, living in a democracy, is that we have a special responsibility to be able to make informed decisions when we vote. Uh, And when we do that, we're going to have to depend on information that's that's trustworthy. And we need to teach people how to identify trustworthy information. And that's not to say that we're not going to have disagreements
1: about what the facts mean, but we can agree that there are things that are factual and things that are not. You know, I wanted to bring up one other thing, and I find that myself, when I'm looking at news stories, if it's a story from a national site, I try to find a local paper or a TV or radio station or whatever, a local source that's covering it because I'm much more likely to get the best information from a local source. I find that when I go to the national news websites, a lot of it is tailored for a national audience. They might not care about the nuances to a local community, but the people that are writing it up on a local newspaper website or TV or whatever, are held accountable by their own community because they live in that community. And I feel like there could be something there when trying to turn things around on a national level of where we're seeing all of this polarizing information. And I feel like the importance of teaching that at a school, you know, when when you're talking about journalism, just the importance of what it's like to live in that community and be held by that community standard is something that is lost in when we just rely solely on national websites that curate this stuff there's always things lost in translation and, and maybe that's where some of the problem is
0: I, I i think you're absolutely right and that's kind of a um, one way that we can triangulate on the truth um i've, I've again mentioned that i was left of center in terms of my own world view uh, but I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, at uh, uh, Murdoch publication. Uh, I also subscribe to Reason Magazine, the online version, uh, which is a libertarian publication, um, because there's this thing called confirmation bias. And if you're a liberal and everything you get is from the New York Times or Washington Post, um, you're going to have your worldview reinforced. And the problem with that is you're more likely to accept it as face value. So I think that what you're talking about is simply a another way, and a very good way to triangulate on the truth. There's a lot to be said for uh, stories coming uh, out of Atlanta by reading the Atlanta Constitution as opposed to uh, you know some national news source like, like the New York Times or the Washington Post. And so that's another good way to triangulate on what the truth is by realizing that, that um, many media organizations are making their best efforts to um, do a good job of covering the news and covering it accurately. Um, mm-hmm. But you're more likely to um, find um, the biases, if you will, and we all have, you know, subjective biases sure. that influence our work. I was a journalist for a number of years before I became a college professor, and um, I had biases, and I I tried to address them, but um, we're all human beings, and so you need to look at perspectives from other people, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, that when yeah. we look at um, people who well, are that, unhappy with the, uh, yeah. with media, uh, local media have a much stronger reputation.
1: Totally. Totally understand. Just for the sake of time, we, we saw that firsthand here in St. Louis with Ferguson, of course. But I want to make sure people can find you, David Dozier Books, D-O-Z-I-E-R, com. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. This is Overnight America KMOX.